What's up, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, health and fitness expert, Ted Rice, and this is the show that's all about taking your health, your body, and your life to that next level. Today, we're going to be talking about a very important part of your body. We're going to be talking about, no, get your mind out of the gutter, not that body part. We're going to be talking about your brain, and we're going to be talking about foods and other things that you can do to help improve your cognitive performance and prevent neurodegenerative diseases like dementia. Because today's guest, he's actually written a book about that. We'll talk a bit about that in a second, but for now, I want to tell you that Legendary Lean is going to open on April 4th. In case you haven't been listening to the show that long, Legendary Lean is my health transformation coaching group. And I like to call it health transformation, although people probably want more of a body transformation. But the biggest feedback that I get from my clients is that, yes, I'm looking better, but the biggest thing is that I feel amazing. And that's what I love to hear because if you feel amazing, you're going to be able to level up in all areas of your life and just some of the amazing testimonials. Just wait until you hear and see some of the people who went through this past Legendary Lean. It's just incredible. So it's opening up. Go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash coaching to get on the waiting list because spots will be limited. We Use an app is a coaching group. So that means I'm going to be interacting with you. That means we can't have 100 people in the group, okay? Or even 50 people in the group. It'll be too much uh, to deliver the type of quality that we want to deliver. So if you want the results like you've been hearing in the episodes, on the testimonial episodes that we put up on the show, make sure you go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash coaching and sign up to the waiting list now. On to today's episode. So the name of uh, today's guest is Max Lugavier. And I've known about Max for actually a couple years now. And I was really excited to finally get him on the podcast. And we had such an amazing conversation. To be honest, I I wasn't sure how it was going to go down. I know Max is a big deal. He's a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and a brain food expert. And he's also the director of the upcoming film, Breadhead, the first ever documentary about dementia prevention through diet and lifestyle. So he has written a book called Genius Foods and just really, really amazing conversation. And what I love about Max is his balanced approach to things because mainstream medicine kind of tells us, hey, it's just age and you, there's nothing you can do about it. Then on the other side, there's all the science, pseudo-scientific, holistic health people who say, hey, just balance your chakras and eat some whole foods with life force energy, and you're never going to get a chronic disease, and, and you'll live to 120. And the truth is actually somewhere in the middle, and, and Max brings that balance uh, to his book and to this episode So get ready to enjoy this interview with Max Lugavier. Max Lugavier, welcome to the Legendary Life Podcast, man. Thanks for doing this. So good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. In fact, we were having such a good conversation. I didn't want to leave it off of uh, the podcast. I wanted to make sure we got it all. So very interesting. I've known about you for a while I've been following your work. I saw a trailer for your movie, Breadhead. I can't remember when, and I know that's not out yet, but you're, you have a new book out called Genius Foods, and I want to talk about that. And you have a very personal story that led up to this line of inquiry that you're in right now, You know why you went down this road and, and started researching these topics. But before we get to that, can you just... Tell people who may not be familiar with you a little bit about who you are and and how you describe what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a health and science journalist. My um, background is in traditional journalism in the United States with uh, an emphasis on um, video. I uh, 
used to work for a TV network that Al Gore, former U.S. vice president, co-founded called Current TV. And I got to cover stories that really ran the gamut of the human experience there, ranging from, you know, more topical stories to pretty hard-hitting journalism. And having always had a passion for health and science, my I had sort of free reign at the network to kind of talk about whatever I was into. And, you know, that would always tend to be pulled in the direction of health and science, which is something that I've just always been a fan of, and particularly nutrition and exercise and fitness and anti-aging, longevity, things like that. When I uh, left Current TV to try to figure out where I was going to go with my career, I was sort of like, I described myself at that point in my life sometimes as being a stem cell. I uh, you know, could have gone in a million different directions. Um, I was being pulled in a few directions that I didn't really want to go to, go in as, a, as somebody working in Hollywood and having a background and in, in experience in TV hosting. And during that sort of interim period where I was really trying to differentiate, um, keeping going with the stem cell analogy, my mom, who lives back home in New York City, started to complain to me over the phone of experiencing brain fog and problems with her memory. And I was very curious about that complaint. I'd never heard it before. And my mom was what anybody would consider at the time to be a high performer. I started spending more and more time in New York City with her. And I too noticed that it had seemed as if my mom's cognitive abilities had downshifted. And this coincided with a change to her gait, which is how she walked. So my mom, like any New Yorker, very fast walking, fast talking. The changes that I was seeing in my mom and that was, and these changes were corroborated by my brothers. My brothers saw them as well, and they both live in New York. Uh, was really unsettling to me, and it all culminated um, for me and my family really when we were all actually in Miami, uh, which I know that's where you're where you're from. We were hanging out in my dad's apartment in Aventura, and we were all sort of together. My mom and dad had been divorced since I was 18, but they're amicable. And, you know, once a year, we would all get together. And my mom announced to the family for the first time that she'd been having memory problems and had sought the help of a neurologist. And um, me and my dad and my brothers, I mean, we were, we were dumbfounded. We, you know, we actually didn't take what she said very seriously to the point that my dad asked my mom, well, if you're having memory problems, what year is it? Right. And, and my mom kind of stared at us for a moment, um, not super responsive. And to sort of break the uneasy silence, me and my brothers, who were completely ignorant at the time, chimed in and were like, come on, mom, how can you not know the year? Like that, like almost mocking of, you know, the time that she was taking to, to recall what year it is or was. And she essentially broke down in that moment and began to cry. She was struggling so much. And that was the moment that for me, everything changed. I um, ended up going back to Los Angeles. I, my you know, ability to think about my career at that really sort of critical time for me was, I mean, I just wasn't able to do it. I was dropped by the talent agency that rep represented me at the time. My career was in a tailspin. Oh. I ended up... Yeah, I ended up moving back to New York and um, really just wanted to figure out what the hell was going on with my mom. I mean, that's 100% that's what motivated me. And it ended up with me going with her to various doctor's appointments to actually be in that office with her because I've always been very health-minded and my mom not so much. So I really wanted to, to firsthand know what these doctors were saying about what my mom was complaining of and what was going on with my mom. And ultimately, the journey culminated in a trip to the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. And it was there that for the first time, my mom was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease. And I mean, I was shocked. I was, I felt helpless and hopeless. I basically began diving into the research and really trying to figure out how this could have happened to my mom. She didn't really have a clear diagnosis, but my Mom was prescribed drugs for both Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. And I just focused on those two diseases to try to learn to the best of my ability, you know, everything I possibly could about the etiology of both of these diseases. On the one hand, to see if there was anything that might be done to help my mom. But on the other hand, it became very apparent that I really needed to focus on prevention because I stumbled upon this shocking insight that Alzheimer's disease begins in the brain 30 to 40 years before the first symptom. So if you were to subtract 30 years from my mom's age, 
at the time, you would get me. And it just became very clear to me that this was something that I really needed to go all in on. And without any, I didn't have any career aspiration initially for it. I just really wanted answers. And the fact that I wasn't a medical doctor didn't seem as a barrier to truth for me. I was just like, you know. We can get into that in a a second because sometimes the doctors, you know, they definitely have the foundational knowledge, no doubt, like nobody else, right? But yeah. So, so Max, uh, man, this, I, I love hearing, thank you so much for sharing that story. It seems like, you know, you found the right thing for yourself too. You've combined your passions with something that's going to make a difference for people. And one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you on the show is because we do have a lot of doctors on this show and neuroscientists and sometimes the way they communicate and I've got the good ones on, not the ones who say, oh, it's just, uh, you know, part of normal aging, right? These degenerative diseases, but you, you know, you have this ability to break it down so that you reach more people. And uh, that's why I'm really excited to have you on. I want to talk a little bit about what your mom started going through because Alzheimer's is a thing in my family too. Both my dad's mom and uh, dad both had it. And my grandmother, when I was maybe 14, 13 years old, was so bad, she didn't even recognize me. In fact, she like was aggressive towards me. And even, it sounds funny now, but, but looking back, it's really sad. But she put me in a headlock one time. And my grandmother was like a, a model, a former model. And it's not wow. the type of person to do those types of things. She wasn't wow. an athlete, but it just messed with her brain so much that I just was like a, a stranger or even an enemy in the house. So let's talk a little bit. Let's unpack your mom's situation because you say she was diagnosed and given drugs for both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Why both of those? What, what were you able to figure out about that? Because that sounds like a very strange situation. I don't know much about Parkinson's at all. I know a little bit about Alzheimer's. What, what were you able to figure out with that conventional diagnosis? Because it almost seems like they weren't sure what was right. going on. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, they weren't sure. My mom didn't have a classical presentation of either of those diseases. She had symptoms that were indicative of a movement disorder. So Parkinson's is the most well-known movement disorder. It's, it affects a region of the brain called the substantia nigra, where the cells that produce dopamine in that region of the brain begin to die. And by the time you show your very first symptom of Parkinson's disease, half of the dopaminergic neurons in that region are already dead. So this well, is a disease that begins in the brain well before the presentation of symptoms. Uh, and my mom had movement symptoms. I, her gait changed. She, her, what was normal, what was, what would, was previously a, a stride, a normal stride that you would see and not think twice about became more of a shuffle. Mm. And um, her balance was affected. She um, started to feel more stiff. These are all very typical symptoms of Parkinson's disease, but they're not the um, most well-recognized symptom of Parkinson's disease, which is the tremor. So my mom really had that. She also had cognitive problems, which are more indicative of a memory disorder, Alzheimer's disease being the most common uh, memory disorder affecting 5 million people in the United States, about 15 million people worldwide. And her cognitive problems were not typical of Alzheimer's disease either. It had seemed like her processing speed had severely uh, downshifted but she didn't have some of the other memory problems associated with Alzheimer's disease. You know, a neurologist usually will say, if you forget where your keys are, that's normal aging. If you forget what your keys are for, that's a problem. Um, Yes. Yeah. So my mom at that stage really had just seemed like the best way that I can describe this. And I describe it like this in the book is that it seemed like, you know, when you have a web browser open with too many tabs, Going I have no same. idea what you're talking about, Max. Yeah, no idea. <laughs> right. Just 30 to 40 and three different ones. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. That's what it's like. Or like a computer with like not enough RAM. I mean, that's exactly what my mom's brain, you know, it seemed like her RAM had somehow been removed from her, from her brain. Um, right. And 
despite the fact that they couldn't really get a clear diagnosis, it wasn't Alzheimer's disease, it wasn't necessarily Parkinson's disease, they prescribed the same drugs for, you know, regardless of the variant of dementia that you have, typically you get the same battery of biochemical band-aids. Um, these drugs have no disease-modifying effect. They don't slow the progression. They don't do anything to really solve the underlying crisis that's going on in the brain. Um, what they do is they tinker with neurotransmitters. So the gold standard Parkinson's drug is called Cinemet. It basically replaces dopamine because, as I mentioned, the dopamine-producing neurons involved in Parkinson's, involved, you know, involved in movement, are dying. And then the, one of the most common drugs prescribed for Alzheimer's disease basically uh, reduces the breakdown of a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, which is really important for learning and memory. And the neurons that produce it in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's disease are also slowly dying. So the, despite the fact that my mom didn't have a clear diagnosis of either disease, it was clear that she had some kind of Parkinsonian thing going on, and they prescribed her both of those drugs. But in the doctor's office, and this is, I think, what fueled, at least initially, my quest, was that I experienced what I've come to call diagnose and adios. He did nothing to explain these two drugs for me, uh, or to me, rather. He didn't bring up you know, the term Alzheimer's disease. He didn't say that one of these drugs is for, typically pre prescribed for Alzheimer's disease. And he also didn't mention anything about diet and lifestyle. Nothing about exercise, nothing about a potential dietary intervention, even though now I know that the, the impact that diet and lifestyle have on the brain, even if you've progressed to something like dementia, is peppered throughout the medical literature. And so I just became really motivated by that to learn everything I could and to, and to spread that because I, I know that most people, I mean, if I didn't hear anything about diet and lifestyle at the Cleveland Clinic, which is, you know considered by many people to be a cathedral to modern medical um, insight, then, you know, I just assumed that nobody was getting that kind of information and that I needed to do my part to really be a catalyst. I learned that it takes on average 17 years for what's discovered in science to make its way into day-to-day -day clinical practice. 17 not years. surprised to hear that. I yeah. mean, it's shocking and sad. But and what surprised. you said diagnose and adios. I've never heard that before, but right when you said it, I knew exactly what you meant. I, I've, I mean, I, I've heard from, uh, I've experienced myself issues with doctors and I've heard from many listeners and my dad even has uh, a bunch of bad doctor stories and, and it's just a, a tough situation. It's not entirely their fault, but we kind of expect them, hey, listen, I know you're having a hard time paying the bills and you don't really make money. Uh, well, actually, it takes a long time to really coach someone to, to change their lifestyle. I mean, I, I do it for a living and it's very difficult. People drop off and get back on the wagon then fall off and get back on the wagon. And most people end up giving up because they feel like they're a failure. They don't understand. It's just a learning curve and you're trying to do something that nobody has ever taught you how to do before. But what did you end up learning about your mom's situation and what were you able to learn through your research to, to help her? I'm, I'm like really concerned about your mom right now. Man. Yeah. Tell me there's a, a happy ending to this. Well, I, I'm probably going to disappoint you, but you know, I, so a, a couple of years prior to my mom's struggles and this Cleveland Clinic visit, I had watched a TED talk that many people at this point, I think, have watched by Terry Walls. And she's a, a physician who has essentially treated her progressive MS with diet and lifestyle. And I'd watched this a long time ago, but I kind of had it in my back pocket. And it was one of the first things that I really thought about when I had the hunch that diet and lifestyle might be able to play a role in helping my mom. This is one of the first exposures that I had that, that TEDx talk to the idea that diet and lifestyle were related to brain, the brain and that the brain has specific dietary needs that are not being met by the standard American diet. Right. So the first thing that I did was I went to PubMed and I started looking into Alzheimer's disease and, and diet. And uh, I intuitively picked out Alzheimer's disease to really begin researching because 
just intuitively, it's the most common form of dementia. And so I just knew that there was going to be a lot more money there into research on interventions, dietary interventions, risk factors, and whatnot for Alzheimer's disease. Just thinking, you know, intuitively that whatever I was going to glean from that, I might be able to, you know, apply to my mom. I began digging around and I stumbled in, uh, after not too long on the insight that um, was sort of somewhat newly discussed in the medical literature, but um, since then has really exploded. And that is that Alzheimer's disease is essentially a form of diabetes of the brain. I've read that before. Diabetes type three. Yes. Some people refer to it as. Yeah. So the researcher who coined that is, her name is Suzanne de Lamonte, and she's a neuropathologist at Brown University. I've had the privilege of getting to go to her lab and interview her. Um, but essentially what happens is that in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's disease, there are, just, there are striking similarities between what happens in their brains and what happens in, say, the muscle tissue of a person who has become a type 2 diabetic. The brain essentially becomes insulin, insulin resistant. It becomes mm. less able to effectively process glucose. In the brain, insulin has a myriad of roles. Some are understood most are probably not yet elucidated, but, but essentially what happens in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's disease is that their brains become dramatically less uh, effective at producing ATP out of glucose. And glucose generally is one of the brain's primary fuel sources, along with fat. And just so people who didn't pay attention in biology class, yeah. uh, ATP, ATP, can you explain is- that? Absolutely. So ATP is the energetic currency of cells. Um, it's, it's essentially the gasoline um, that allows your cells to perform all of their very many functions that, you know, when you zoom out is what allows you to be alive. Without ATP, no life. Um, and ATP is a highly conserved energy, you know, energy molecule that uh, is used by a myriad of, you know, if not all organisms, it's the energetic currency of life. And we generated via a form of sort of molecular combustion in our cells' mitochondria through the utilization of glucose um, in the brain, and to a lesser degree today, especially fat in the when they're when they're uh, transformed into into compounds called ketone bodies by the liver. Now, this is really interesting because an Alzheimer's brain, the brain of a person with Alzheimer's disease its ability to create energy out of glucose is reduced by about 50%. And the brain is the most energy hungry organ in your body. 25% of your base metabolic rate is being used to create energy in your brain. So what that means is all the cal, you know, one fourth of the calories that you consume every single day, one, one out of every four breaths you take is being used to create energy in your brain. And when you consider the relative uh, proportion of your brain in comparison to the rest of your body. I mean, it's very small, right? Yeah. It's literally, pounds. Yeah. It's the size of a grapefruit. And yet 25% of all of the energy that you are creating in your body is being created in your brain. So it's a very metabolically hungry organ and any disturbance in the brain's ability to create energy is going to spell trouble essentially. And so that's exactly what seems to happen in Alzheimer's disease. And that's actually now, what I believe is the earliest observable feature. So up until fairly recently, we didn't have the level of imaging technology that we currently do. The only way that you could actually diagnose somebody with Alzheimer's disease up until very recently was on death, you would perform an autopsy on that person's brain and see their brain riddled with plaques. Mm. So if you take a person who had the severe cognitive impairment that somebody with Alzheimer's in late stages will uh, inevitably have, and you open up their brain and their brains are riddled with these plaques and tangles that define the disease, boom, you've got an Alzheimer's patient, right? And that's why those plaques and tangles have been so closely associated with the disease to the point that researchers for the past couple of decades have really pinpointed them as being causative players in the disease. But now we have new technologies that allow us to look into the brains of people at risk for Alzheimer's disease way earlier. We can look at amyloid load in the brain way earlier. We can look at the brain's ability to use glucose way earlier. 
And so, whereas amyloid was the most observable feature in the in the in brain tissue as it relates to Alzheimer's disease, now we have other things that we can we can I mean we can look at biomarkers in the blood, we can look at brain scans, and researchers have actually observed that um, this impaired ability to use uh, by the brain to to use glucose effectively actually occurs seemingly across the age spectrum. So it seems that this is among the earliest. Uh, things really to be affected that's that's associated with Alzheimer's disease, and it really spotlighted it as being a uh, a probable causative factor in the disease. Interesting. So these, uh, yeah, it's been well known that amyloid beta buildup in the brain. It's the strong connection there. Scientists still use correlation instead of causation. Uh, maybe you can unpack that a little yeah. bit. And so. What do we, I'm, I'm thinking right now for someone listening and uh, maybe they're like me because I, I have a very personal interest in this Yeah. because of the history of my family. Although my dad's 75, he's got a myriad of health problems, but he is one of the sharpest people mentally that I know. He knows all this trivia really about World War II, all these details. And I'm like, how do you even know all that stuff? I mean, yeah. You know, but uh, what what can we do to assess our risk factors now, and what is practical to do? I mean, not all of us have the resources or, or the time to go in and get expensive brain imaging or biomarker testing. What what can we do, Max, to to try to assess our risk? That's a great question. Um, so I don't recommend that people go and get brain scans and things like that. You don't need to because actually there are things that you can easily measure on a on a your next appointment with your physician that are related to brain metabolism. So one of the top ways that it's believed to really ensure that your brain is uh, processing glucose effectively is to really nurture the metabolism of the body. So I mean today, unfortunately, half of U.S. Um, adults are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. And if you have type 2 diabetes, your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease increases two to fourfold, unfortunately. But, you know, honoring the metabolism of the body. And now there are a myriad of studies showing that a lower carbohydrate diet really seems to be the best way to do that. I mean, if you're already insulin resistant, getting rid of the processed foods, the sugar, the unhealthy fats, reducing inflammation, de-stressing, finding a way of healthily dealing with stress, getting rid of the, um, you know, the added sugars that now just are so overabundant in our food supplies. These are the things that really help to bring about um, insulin sensitivity. And there's a, a strong relationship between insulin sensitivity in the body and brain uh, metabolism, glucose metabolism in the brain. So... Totally made sense after you, after I asked that question, you're like, well, what's good for the body is good for the brain because it's just an organ of the body, although it is the most important organ, arguably, because uh, once that goes, nothing else matters. Yeah. Uh, at least your heart, you can have it, tr you get a transplant, you can still live and, and still enjoy. But once your brain goes, yeah, it, it's, it's over. N nothing exists for you anymore except for you know, except for, for that damaged brain and, and your perception of things, which I guess we have no idea what that's like. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about your, what you just said, because if we rewind back a little bit, you talked about ketone bodies yeah. in the brain. You just said that low carbohydrate diets. And, um, you know, there's, there's kind of, as I'm sure you're well aware of, there is so much controversy about <laughs> diet, and uh, I don't have anything necessarily against the low-carb or ketogenic world, but definitely I found that I wasn't able to do it because carbohydrates, at least in my situation, when I dropped them too low, it heightens anxiety, and I ended up having panic attacks. And when I talked earlier about my problem with a, a doctor, he was just like, oh, well, you you know, you had some tragedy in your life and, and it's just, uh, you know, your life was stressful and it's hitting you now. I'm like, man, that is so intellectually lazy of you to say that. Yeah, Why right. now? But uh, I was able to do some research and I found that carbohydrates, in fact, the Wurtzmans from uh, MIT 
did some research on this and that carbohydrate uh, restriction can lower serotonin and, and conversely, it, it can raise serotonin in your brain if you eat them. So what, what can you tell us? Now, did you mean specifically insulin resistant people as far as low carb diets are concerned or just in general? Can you unpack that a little bit for us and give us some context? Absolutely. So yeah, I'm not really a big fan of the zealotry online and the religious fervor that surrounds the low carb, uh, low fat debate. I mean, I'm really, you know, I think one of the best traits that a scientist can have, and when I say scientist, I'm not affiliated with any academic university, but I think that we all have the ability to practice science in our lives. Science is a method of finding things out. Science is not something that is guarded in some emerald academic city somewhere. You know, I think, I think all scientists should be willing to challenge their hypotheses and pivot when they're proven wrong. We should remain skeptical, not cynical. And so, you know, I'm, if you were to tell me that a vegan diet would be the ideal diet for the brain, I would say, okay, well, show me the evidence. But so that's why I'm not, I don't, you know, like, I think when it comes to insulin resistance and the rates of type two diabetes that we're seeing, it would be impossible to pinpoint uh, or to point a finger at even diet alone, because there's so many other aspects of modern life that really have been to the detriment of our health. I mean, chronic stress. Toxic exposures to um, chemical, you know, byproducts and and food additives and ultra processed foods that are designed to create insatiable overconsumption. I mean, these are really like some of the worst offenders. You know, the fact that we all live and work indoors with minimal exposure to the sun and nature. I mean, these are all related. When it comes to diet, dietary patterns in particular, I think you know it's really. For me, I look at diet through the lens of evolution, and my focus is really, you know, what diet makes the most sense from the perspective of an evolving brain. So, you know, grains and and things like that really have only been around for the last second of human evolution. You know, some researchers have pointed to uh, ancient grains, you know, being evident in some hunter-gatherer diets, but regardless of the exact percentage of starches that we might have consumed during our evolution, scientists speculate that we probably consumed about 150 grams of fiber per day, whereas today we consume about 15 grams of fiber on a good day. So regardless of the exact percentage of carbohydrate intake that our ancestors might have consumed, those carbs were clearly accompanied by massive fiber intake, which is a critical distinction between the carbs that we're consuming today and the carbs that we likely consumed back then. We also had to chase our food um, for the most part. Uh, and our diets were really much more diverse. A hunter-gatherer, you know, the land was of your forager's buffet. There are 50,000 edible plant species around the world. Today, our diets have become dominated by three of them, wheat, corn, and rice. And these, mm. are, these grains are highly nutrient-poor and energy-dense. So I mean, this is one of the reasons why one of the reasons why ninety percent of Americans are are deficient in at least one vitamin or mineral. So the brain has the ability to mop itself up of oxidative stress and repair against the damages incurred due to just simply living. But we need to give our brains the right ingredients to do that. So that's why when I make my recommendations for people in terms of diets, it's nutrient density first. I don't even really think about macronutrients so much, like protein, fat, and carbs. I mean, I really think more in terms of the whole foods that, that contain the nutrients that the brain needs. And I don't think that there's room in that diet for grains. I don't think that grains are toxic. I think that if, you, that if you're exercising, if you're doing high-intensity work in the gym, you can certainly eat grains every now and then and have those grains serve a functional purpose in your body, right? Like they get shuttled into your muscles where they wait to power you through your next workout. But I think the problem today is that we're advised to eat them as if there were evidence that they improve health, which there, there's not, according to the right. latest. There's not. There's not. <laughs> no, uh, talk about it. Were you about to say, are you going to talk about the, the Cochrane review yes. that came yes. out recently? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, sorry, guys, doesn't, doesn't do anything for your health. <laughs> yeah. So, so just unpack that because uh, the, the Cochrane, not a lot of people listening are going to know what that is. Can okay. you just talk about that? 
Absolutely. Because we've been told that healthy grains, I mean, I've told people to eat healthy grains, but I do it more out of uh, not putting unrealistic expectations on people to change their dietary habits, not because it's optimal, because I'm like you, eat some fruits and vegetables and get rid of the grains. But but anyway, back to the, the review on grains. So are grains healthy or not? Yeah. So Cochrane, as you mentioned, by the way, I love that you brought that up because I was getting there and it's just like, I love the flow that we're in. But yeah, so Cochrane is this organization known for their unbiased systematic reviews of medical literature. And they do this in partnership with the World Health Organization. And they recently looked at all of the evidence regarding grains, but the distinction between um, this study and other meta-analyses that have been performed is that they only looked at randomized controlled trials, which are the kinds of trials required to prove cause and effect, okay? So you can look at dietary patterns at the population level, but it's impossible at that level to tease out the role of grains, which is why grains are included in the Mediterranean dietary pattern, because people in the Mediterranean, they might eat some grains. So our nutrition policy writers have mistakenly assume that grains were playing a causal role. But this, this Cochrane report was so compelling because they looked at randomized controlled trials. And the, the advice that we're given even today is that grains improve health. We have to include grains at every meal according to the USDA MyPlate because grains improve health, right? And what this research found was that there's no good evidence to say that grains improve health. Right. And... You know, I mean, there you have it. That tells you that our dietary recommendations are not evidence-based, right? Yeah. And, and let me piggyback on that a little bit because just to really get people to understand what, what you just said. So a lot of the research, quote unquote, research that's been shown uh, or, or that people base their, oh, well, healthy uh, grains are healthy for you and they improve whatever risk factor or biomarker, it's because it's self-reported data uh, and people are like, hey, these people don't, didn't get cancer as much as these other people and they ate healthy grains. So grains must be healthy. It's not really a strong, like you mentioned, strong evidence. So in the Cochrane review, they actually gave people grains or didn't give people grains and actually saw what happened to their health. And they looked at many studies doing this particular thing, the randomized controlled trials, and it no health benefits to eating grains whatsoever. Right. Our nutrition policy is based almost exclusively on epidemiological data, which basically, you know, when you look at the population level, well, if you were just to take a group of a hundred people and look at their diets, you can rest assured that the people in that group that are eating grains like brown rice or quinoa, which is this like privileged grain that, you know, we love here in Los Angeles and in Miami and in New York City. But if you look at the rest of the country, they don't even know what quinoa is. Right. And so if, if you look at people that are eating these kinds of grains, you can, you can almost bet money on the fact that they have gym memberships, they work out, maybe a few of them take a multivitamin. I mean, they're living healthy lifestyles. And they may probably make good money and, yeah. you know, have massages and right. Yeah. Shop at Whole Foods. Exactly. Poor people are eating white bread and white rice, and they're eating all the other junk food crap that, you know, I mean, there's, there are major food deserts in this country, and it's so unfortunate where poor people, low, you know, people on the, on the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum literally have to grocery shop at gas stations. And so that's why whole grains are so closely tethered to other healthy dietary patterns that when you're looking at them from the population level, yeah, they have good health outcomes. But even at that, at that level, it's impossible to say that the grains are playing a causal role. So what I argue in my book, Genius Foods, is that these dietary patterns, the Mediterranean diet, the Japanese dietary pattern, and other healthy diets are healthy, not because of grains, but in spite of them. You know, That's maybe these point. people are exercising more, they're eating less of the highly processed foods and oils and and all the other things that are associated with, with ill health. And that's really what is giving these people the most bang for their buck. It's not that grains have anything to do with it. Yeah. And I'm in Thailand right now, as you know, and most, if you're listening to this show for a while, you know, uh, and I tell you one of the most 
interesting observations that I've made and and kind of paradigm shifts is this is probably like what the US was, I, I don't even know, like maybe 50 years ago, 70 years ago. And you see people, for one, healthy food is very diverse and it's cheaper than processed food. And so it's the exact opposite of what you get in the States where it's much, much uh, more cost effective, like you said, to, to buy something from the gas station or McDonald's dollar menu. So it's reversed here. And you can also see the transition towards modernization of uh, or industrialization of their food. And you can see the people having the problems. And it's so interesting because here, all the low income people are eating a wide, like this incredible mushroom soup or all these uh, different varieties of vegetables. And the people who are a bit wealthier, uh, they're buying muffins. They, they wow. have this, this mall right by where I'm staying. And it's got like all these breads and uh, all, all these bread shops and which are, deli- they have some delicious pastries here, by the way. <laughs> but you see them and they're, and they're more, they're overweight and they're buying a ton of it, but it costs one of those buns or croissants cost almost the same as an entire meal. Wow. So it's just really interesting uh, to see that. And you kind of like, wow, this is the US is what every place that's going under uh, this modernization, this technological progress or progression, that's what they're going to all eventually end up as it seems. Yeah, definitely. There was um, really good research uh, performed out of University of Texas that looked at the advice for people to eat everything in moderation. And they used dietary diversity as a, um, as sort of a, a, an end point. And they basically found that people that adhere to the, the eat everything in moderation advice, which is advice that I, that I hate by the way, and, and you'll soon find out why Eating uh, a diet that's more diverse in the modern food environment essentially leads to people eating more, drinking more sodas, eating more desserts, confectionery products, and unhealthy foods. It's interesting because dietary diversity as a hunter-gatherer was probably an amazing thing and actually probably is what was responsible for the development of our brains. But today in the modern supermarket, I mean, what you really want to do is you want to pick a, a more limited number of healthy foods and then buy those foods on loop. I mean, the healthiest people, and this was what was discussed in that, in that study, tend to buy a smaller range of healthy foods again and again and again. And I, even before reading the study, tend to do that intuitively. I go to the supermarket and I, I've always got to walk out with the staples that I have to have. Pastured eggs, grass-fed beef, dark leafy greens, an avocado, extra virgin olive oil, got to say stocked up on extra virgin olive oil. And these are the foods that I think, you know, really when you eat them, they, they provide everything that you need, you know? So rather than kind of continue to beat people over the head with what I think many people, especially uh, a more informed audience like yours is, people tend to know that sugar at this point is not good for you. You know, so in the book, we really try to uh, go a little bit beyond that and talk about the overabundance of highly processed grain and seed oils in the food supply and how damaging those are to the brain. But then also just to tell people what to eat, like not what to, you know, uh, it's not about fear mongering anymore. It's about really kind of carving out a path for people to make healthier choices in their life. So I talk about what I call the 10 genius foods. I've sort of, um, co-opted the term superfood, which is, uh, not a real scientific terms. Uh, you'll never catch a, a you know a scientist using the term superfood, but I think it's it's caught on. So why not co-opt it? I and, like that term. Yeah. So go for it. I love the term genius foods because yeah, what are we going to say? Highly nutrient dense. You know, it, it just doesn't relate to people. And why make people have to learn all this jargon yeah. that they're uncomfortable with? Because the majority of people don't love science because it's like it's like math. Right. right. It's got probably they got the same love as math. Why make them do that? So I'm, I'm with you hundred percent on that. Yeah. So I highlight the foods that really have, um, you know, the, the, the biggest uh, impact on the brain and have sort of the most robust um, amount of research that I could really draw on to 
support my claim that these foods are really good for the brain um, and will support how well you think, how you feel, you know, help you maintain your energy levels, cognitive resilience, things like that. Um, Can you give us a few, obviously, absolutely. if you're listening to this right now and you want to know, this is just a book that you should buy because Max has done his homework. He's not one of the people who are uh, proselytizing for like a very narrow view of nutrition. He's done his homework. Uh, this is something, I mean, I, I really want to read your book here because I feel like I don't know enough about, uh, I've been too into like fat loss and muscle building. And I, I really want to step my game up when it comes to the brain because I'm 41, something I'm more concerned about. So if you're listening now, you want to step your game up with making sure you're choosing foods that are helping you cognitively get his book. Uh, but share maybe one or two, Max. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I want, I just want to help people. So, you know, I think one of the most controversial um, foods that I, that I really in the book make the claim that it's a, a health food where the brain is concerned is grass-fed beef. You know, grass-fed beef is one of the few foods that is really, um, I think, tricky to try to study, uh, especially at the population level, because the, the format that most people are consuming meat in especially in this country, but increasingly around the world, um, is really unhealthy. You know, they, the, this meat comes from grain-fed cows that are pumped full of antibiotics and hormones and things like that. But from an evolutionary perspective, researchers speculate that it's not just access to meat, but in fact, cooked meat that helped catalyze the growth of our brains. They provide, meat provides uh, an abundance of calories, of highly bioavailable nutrients that are very important for the brain including zinc and vitamin B12 and choline. Um, and there is a, a non-trivial source of preformed fats that help serve as your brain's building blocks, including uh, DHA fat and arachidonic acid, which is an, ome an omega-6 fatty acid, which sort of gets um, kind of a bad rap these days, but actually- It does, yeah. But it's, it's vitally important to the brain, but in a ratio that's comparable to DHA. So in a healthy brain, you've got both present in the neuronal cell membrane, which is, which is really important. You want healthy cell membranes uh, in comparable amounts. And actually, the, fat, the polyunsaturated fat profile in grass-fed beef mirrors that of a healthy human brain. So grass-fed beef is, is important. And there are a few studies that I draw on that I think are um, important and interesting. One of them was done out of UCLA where a researcher named Charlotte Newman basically gave uh, children in Kenya either dairy, beef, or uh, a traditional dish of um, corn and green beans and found that the children that were supplemented with beef actually showed the, the, the steepest improvement in reading and math after two years as compared to the students that were given the vegetarian dish or the dairy dish. Interesting. And, yeah. And they think it's because of this, uh, this beneficial fat profile that the fats and the nutrients yeah. the 12 the zinc the iron um right. yeah so there's that and then also another interesting study that um that i like to talk about was done out of deakin university's food and mood center which found that women it was a study of a thousand women so you know fairly robust food and mood center yeah. i love that yeah that's awesome well, the lead, the director there is a great, you know, you should consider having her on our podcast. Her name is Felice Jacka. I've interviewed her and she's one of the foremost researchers really kind of carving out this uh, line of inquiry called nutritional psychiatry. And, mm. and I, t I detail her research in my book, Genius Foods, actually. But one of, the, one of my favorite studies of hers was that she found in, when looking at a thousand women, that those who didn't eat the nationally recommended three to four servings of, of red meat per week were twice as likely to suffer from a depressive disorder. Um, Interesting. Yeah. But it was like a U-shaped curve because women that ate more than that also were at increased risk. So I feel like that, 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 that dose response to me is pretty suggestive of a, of a causal link. Of course, it doesn't prove one. But the other thing is that in Australia, which is where this center is, um, the meat tends to be of higher quality by default, which is an important caveat. Way better. Yeah. yeah. Australian beef, man. U.S. beef. Eesh. Yeah. Uh, even the chicken that I'm getting here, it's like chicken. Was, I was so disgusted 
with eating chicken before I left. And now like the chickens are so small and they don't have that much fat on them. And it, it just, it, they just taste better. And the, the oaks, I mean, oaks, sorry, still oaks <laughs> of eggs are orange here instead of like a pale yellow. It's so weird. But yeah. uh, I think there's something to that, the higher level of carotenoids or I don't know Definitely. what. Yeah. You bring um, up a, a great point that I just want to sort of touch on for a bit. The fact that a properly raised animal has uh, less fat. So, you know, I think a lot of people in the, in the high, low carb, high fat movement now have sort of, you know, the pendulum has swung to the other side where high fat diets are being embraced. And people, I think, are going to town on saturated fat, right? But if you look at a cow that's properly raised and that has uh, been able to consume the diet that it's meant to consume for its entire life, that cow actually has a much smaller amount of saturated fat in it, which to me hints at the biologically appropriate uh, ratio of fatty acids that we're meant to have. So I'm not a big advocate of consuming excessive saturated fat. Unlike I think a lot of people in the, in the paleo and keto movement. I was just going to say, yeah, just uh, to really, yeah, that's such a great point that you're bringing up, but I was just laughing because like, that's all, like, oh, I put, you know, a stick of butter in my coffee then I drench MCT oil all over my salad and yeah. uh, it's healthy fat. And it's, well, not, maybe not necessarily isn't saturated fat. I read some research on Alzheimer's and saturated fat and there was some link there. Is that still a thing or was that more observational research? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to say. I mean, most, most of the PhDs that I know that are studying Alzheimer's prevention do, definitely do not think that saturated fat is good for the brain. You know, my perspective on it is that a lot of them are coming from the same place that, that our doctors come from in terms of the, the nutritional schooling that they've had. So I don't, I, don't, I don't think that saturated fat as a nutrient is inherently unhealthy or healthy. I think it very much depends on what else you're eating as well as your genes. Mm. So I think, you know, saturated fat seems to be able to exacerbate the problems associated with the, with the standard American diet. But also, there seems to be a problem with people that are at risk for Alzheimer's disease that, that carry the most well-defined Alzheimer's risk gene where they just, they seem to hyper respond to saturated fat in a way that makes their blood lipids like cholesterol and stuff like that take on a less favorable uh, response. And one, mm -hmm. of the, one of the reasons, one of the mechanisms by which saturated fat actually raises your cholesterol is by reducing the number of uh, LDL receptors on your liver. So keeping the cholesterol that's in your body healthy is very important. It's really important for vascular health. Cholesterol is not bad in any way, but the, recycling system, the cholesterol recycling system is of critical importance because when you have these LDL particles in circulation for a longer amount of time, they go from large and fluffy to small and dense. Mm -hmm. And it's the small and dense lipoprotein LDL profile that's really associated with risk. And it makes sense because these smaller particles are more easily oxidized and they're more easily able to embed themselves in your um, endothelium. So you really want your liver, which is what recycles LDL cholesterol to be able to, to be able to do that, to be able to fulfill its job. And saturated fat essentially reduces the number of LDL receptors on the liver surface. And some people are better at this recycling process than others, but this is, you know, sort of, somewhat speculative as there are no concrete answers, but it's believed by many that I've spoken to and just in tinkering with my own diet that carriers of this Alzheimer's risk gene might actually be better off with less saturated fat in the diet. I don't make the, uh, the recommendation to avoid whole foods that contain saturated fat, but I'm certainly not an advocate of going crazy with butter and coconut oil and things like that. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. And this, uh, how important I, I've got, we're coming up on an hour now. I know I, I want to be respectful of your time and of course the listener's time, but I've got two more questions for you. Is that cool, Max? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because man, I feel like I could easily talk to you for hours. Same. So with the genes, I know that's a tricky situation. One of my favorite scientists, Robert Sapolsky has said that 
genes can only tell you they can only tell you something in the context of an environment if it's not a genetic disorder like Prader-Willi or uh, Down syndrome, something like that. What can you tell us about the gene and can we get genetic testing and what does that all mean for Alzheimer's? I'm asking this because I'm very selfishly interested. Yeah. Well, look, one in four people carry this Alzheimer's risk gene. So this is, I mean, a big issue. Wow, relevant a lot of people to many, have. Many people. Yeah. Whether or not you're cognizant of it, you know, you can easily go to 23andMe.com and do a, a gene test and find out if you're a carrier of the APOE4 allele. Carrying once two copies basically results in an increased risk of anywhere between two and 14 fold in the United States. But it, wow. if you look at other parts of the world where this gene is equally, if not more prevalent, like in Nigeria, the Yoruba have uh, a very high frequency of this gene, yet there's little to no association between this gene and Alzheimer's disease there. So what that suggests is that that increased risk that we see in carriers with this gene really is about the interaction between the gene and the, the American food and lifestyle um, landscape. And it also what it suggests is that if you do happen to carry that gene here and have such a dramatically increased risk for the disease, all you got to do is move to Nigeria and see that risk essentially abolished. So it's all about the interaction between genes and, and environment. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because my my thought, my last question, like you said, I feel like we're on the same page here in in in, the, in this flow. It's like, how are we going to get people to change in an environment where it's an uphill battle? For me, I moved and I eat less, and I eat more vegetables, and I eat a wider uh, uh, array of vegetables because of where I'm staying right now. But if I move back to the States, I would probably fall back into the same situation where cheaper food is, is worse for you and the good stuff, the grass-fed beef is cost prohibitive for a lot of people. Man, what do you think is the answer to that for, for the people in the United States or in other modernized countries where it's just this, this upstream you know, thing that they have to deal with? What's the answer there, Max, so- in, in your opinion? It's a really good question. In my opinion, you know, I think we all have the ability to vote with our wallets and create demand. Certainly, the fact that you can now walk into a Walmart and get organic food is a change in the right direction. The mm. FDA is listening. You know, trans fats have been banned. They're now putting added sugar, you know, numbers on, on, the, on the nutrition facts label of processed foods. Um, and then I think the private sector is also really helping rise to the occasion. I mean, we now have companies sprouting up where you can order grass-fed beef to your doorstep or wild fish to your doorstep or other healthy products uh, via the mail, which I think is is super exciting. I also think it comes down to education and and informed consent. You know, I think most of these packaged product packaged foods that are now making up 60% of the calories that we consume nationwide come from ultra processed foods, foods which are designed to promote overconsumption. People tend to think that they've had a moral failure when going through the entire bag of chips or the entire pint of ice cream. And I've certainly done this. You know, I've bought the healthiest version of ice cream that I could find and I will keep it in my freezer. I'll go to it and I'll have a spoonful and tell myself that that's all I'm going to have. And I walk away from the fridge and then five minutes later, I'm walking back to the fridge. Yeah. But it's because these foods literally push your brain to a bliss point and it becomes impossible to control yourself. I've, I've noticed this and this is something that food scientists are very familiar with. And I think that when people are aware of the foods that trigger them, I think it's, it, we can make informed consent. We can opt to not purchase them because at the end of the day, if it's in your shopping cart, it's as good as in your stomach. And, um, and knowing what to avoid you know, I think it gives you the ability to opt in when you want, because certainly if you choose to eat that entire bag of chips, go for it. It's not a moral failure. You've made that choice. You're an adult. You can do whatever you want. But it's when people don't know these sorts of things and they spend a lifetime eating these kinds of foods and they feel trapped on that moving walkway where they feel like they can't get off. And ultimately they develop a chronic disease, which is impossible to fix um, when speaking you know, about some of them. That to me is what's sad and what I want to try to um, help prevent. 
Yeah, and thanks for bringing that up. I, I did a, a, an episode, a couple episodes on the science of food cravings and how, you know, we're just fighting our biology and biology is going to win out. It's been millions of years to create this system that keeps you alive, that keeps you searching for food, for, for nutrient-dense and calorie-dense foods. And for you to think that, oh, well, I'm just going to exert a little bit of willpower and self-control, it only takes time or an argument with your partner or an issue at work or some stress coming home and on your drive home in traffic for you to just say, just fuck it and, and eat whatever it is that is in your refrigerator. So I'm so glad you brought that up and talk about the moral failing because we got to start understanding our, how we're wired and work with that instead of trying to fight and, and think we're so autonomous. I think Americans in particular, we feel like this rugged individualism that we can just do whatever we want. And in, in, in a way we can, but it's so much easier when you just understand the rules of biology, the rules, you know, uh, so, so thanks for bringing that up. Did you have a follow-up there, Max? No, I just, I, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's about, you know, just giving people the tools and, and what you're doing with your podcast and, and, you know, spreading, spreading this message. I think this is all part of the, the ultimate solution at the end of the, at the end of the day. You know, I think that there's a, we live in a time where there's this new kind of healer out there. You know, there's this ability to reach people in a way that is unprecedented, you know, that, that didn't exist prior to maybe 10 years ago. And previous generations were just completely in the dark. You know, only the doctor could know about health. Only the nutritionist could know about nutrition. If you wanted to know anything about something that wasn't within your, your professional wheelhouse, you had to go to the library and just know, you know, think about how arduous that probably was. Oh, and man. I, and I, yeah. And I know that my, that my mom's generation was probably the, the last generation to be uh, really victims of that. You know, my mom, everything that she knew to be true about nutrition came from the U.S. government, came from her doctors, and came from whatever she read in the newspaper. And unfortunately, all of that nutritional insight and information and all the recommendations that were made for, you know, built on the USDA food pyramid and, and prescribed to her since she was a little girl were all complete bullshit. And thankfully, we now have access to research and to people that are helping to unearth, you know, the truth that's out there. I'm one of, you know, many people that are doing this, but, but I, I'm very optimistic that, um, that our generation is going to be the first to really um, live to old age and, uh, and do it in, in better health. I mean, that's my hope anyway. Yeah, well, Max, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for being a person who's stepping, stepping up and stepping out there trying to get people uh, this information. And thanks for the kind words about this show. And I, I really appreciate what you do as well. And especially after spending time today speaking with you, I just feel like a kindred spirit, you know, and, and um, where can people buy your book and find out about your documentary? Thanks so much. Um, and I feel the same way. People can go anywhere they buy books to buy Genius Foods. It's uh, on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble. International listeners can go to, um, well, on Amazon too. But there's also a site called Book Depository that has free global shipping. But yeah, Genius Foods is out there. For Breadhead, go to breadheadmovie.com to check out the Kickstarter teaser. And if you want to get involved in the film, we're still looking. Um, we're, we're still in sort of a fundraising mode. Um, and then find me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Max Lugavir, L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. -E. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Say hi. You got it. I'll have all those links on the show notes. And, you know, it's just thinking about what you said, having to sit down, learning about nutrition through textbooks in the library. Now we have podcasts like this. Now we have Genius Foods where you've presented the information in a way that people can actually understand instead of the big words that you have to have at least a, a, an undergraduate degree in, in biology to figure out. So thanks for that, man. I feel like this is the first of, of many interviews to come. I can't wait to see what you, what you do and what you get out there. And yeah, till next time, Max. Thank you so much, dude. It's been a pleasure. 
Wow, what an incredible interview. How knowledgeable was Max? So you're listening to the TED's Takeaways part of the interview. This is where I break down the top lessons that our guest shared today. And since it was kind of a long episode, I'm just going to keep it very short in that keep in mind that you've got to start thinking about your health now. If you remember what Max said, he said that dementia, things like dementia and Alzheimer's, they start 30 or 40 years before you start showing symptoms. And it's so hard to wrap our heads around that. You've got to push your emotions to the side because the emotional part of us, we're like, man, that's not going to happen to me. That's never going to happen to me. I feel good now. And I'm going to eat my pizza, my cookies, my ice cream. I'm going to sit my butt on my couch and binge watch Game of Thrones, Stranger Things, This Is Us, all, all your favorite shows or Altered Carbon or what else have I been watching? I've been watching the new Jessica Jones just finish that season too. And I'm just going to do all those things. And you know, uh, then I'll worry about health, my health later. Well, if you're one of those people, it may be too late. And I see that with my dad. Now, his mother and father both had Alzheimer's and it was really scary. Like I talked about that story in the interview with Max about how my grandmother put me in a headlock. I mean, it was so weird and, and crazy. And it, it was very sad to watch her degenerate. But the thing is, you've got to start thinking about your health now, especially if you're in your 40s, 50s. This is the time to really pull it together and focus on your habits. And don't say you're going to do it when it's convenient. Don't say you're going to do it yet when you have better time. Focus on it now. And if you want my help, if you want me to be your guide, your coach to get you through the obstacles when they start to come up when you're trying to get in shape, go to legendarylightpodcast.com and join our waiting list at legendarylightpodcast.com slash coaching. That's how I've got. Have an amazing rest of your week and I'll speak to you soon.